Whereas I think that's a relatively low bar to succeed in Europe. I actually think it's a high bar to succeed in the Middle East. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and we are joined in Washington by a new guest who I am very, very pleased to welcome to the table, Sharon Weinberger, who is FP's new executive editor for news. She's also the author of a book I highly recommend, The Imagineers of War, the untold story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. There's no hyperbole in that title, and it's a great read, so I really encourage you to go out and get it. Also joining us in Washington is Derek Chalet, who's heading up FP's Shadow Government blog with Julie Smith and Colin Call. He's also Executive Vice President and Senior Advisor for Security and Defense Policy at the German Marshall Fund, and is the author also of a very good book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey. Who doesn't have a book? To, uh, do you want to push a book, Corey? I mean, I could push something. But... Yeah, my she's got one. Positions coming out from Harvard in September. There you go. So Harvard, September, Corey Shockey. Remember those things. A research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. As I mentioned in the last podcast, we're going to be making deep state sweatshirts and t-shirts so start lining up you get it like deep state like a college you know um and it's very insider and funny and only your cool friends will know what it is if you have any friends most of our nerd listeners just have us but we love you we'll let you know where you can get them soon send your ideas and suggestions to er podcast at foreignpolicy.com Recently, from three tiny podcast studios on the liberal elite coasts of America, we had the following conversation. And welcome back. You know, we like to stay on the cutting edge of things here at the ER. A couple moves ahead of some of the great lights that are driving foreign policy globally. And so... I've been thinking a little bit about what's going to be really an eventful late May. The president of the United States, who's traveled less in his first months in office than many of his recent forebears, is actually going to make a trip to Europe. He's going to attend a NATO summit on May 25th, and then he's going to travel to Sicily, cue the Godfather theme song, for a group of seven leaders summit on May 26th to the 28th. And there have been discussions that he may go to the Gulf and meet with the leaders of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Saudis, the Emiratis, and others uh, to talk about the region. And there have also been leaks of discussions that he may go to Israel to meet with his uh, counterparts there. And so, you know, I think as we get closer and closer to this, This is going to be seen as a bigger and bigger test, not only of Trump, but of how the world views Trump. And so I thought I would turn to our terrific panel of experts here uh, and look for a little bit of what we might expect. Corey, what might we expect? We should expect the secretaries of state and defense, the director of national intelligence and the director of the CIA to have tried 
ardently and urgently to do behind the scenes groundwork so that the president doesn't fly off the handle and, for example, start tweeting in the middle of a NATO summit, boring, boring, pay for your own defense. Um, well, what is that going to involve, like a tranquilizer dart or something? <laughs> you know, now that you mention it, we we ought perhaps to arm staff with blowgun tranquilizer darts. I think that would be extraordinarily good move in this administration. I, I love that. I love Trump sitting there, Derek, at a NATO meeting, and all of a sudden he grabs the back of his neck and slumps forward. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, I've I, Corey's been to these two. I've been in my fair share of NATO meetings, and they serve as their own kind of tranquilizer. So uh, it's true, no tranquilizer dart needed. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, On the other hand, you know, a president who's actually a grown-up will sit there and you know doodle. Yeah, a president who has ADD might indeed start tweeting or leaning to somebody else or yawning or. You know, so I whatever. feel the need to point out that President Obama did not sit through the NATO meetings either. He'd listen to a couple of speeches and then the staff would arrange bilateral meetings that, for him to have with with NATO folks to get him out of the general session. Uh, actually, a, a bit. No, I was just going to say a bit of an amendment on that, having been to a couple with him. He, he actually would. He was stuck in the meetings more often than his staff was because they were it was easier for the secretary of state or defense to get up and do their meetings where he was stuck at the table. But he would read his iPad. I mean, that was the difference is he would, you know, for these four hour sessions where he he would be stuck there. That was and that, he would yeah. not be happy about that. Can I just want a couple things on this NATO meeting and just wait, wait, yep, go ahead. Wanna, Sorry, Corey, go. Well, let's finish on NATO and yeah. then I'll go on to the Middle East, which I think is going to be the most significant of the president's yeah, trips. I, I I agree. So I'll just stick to the NATO Europe piece and then pause and let Corey speak on the Middle East. On the NATO piece, first, he's going to get protested when he goes to Europe. So this is not new. I mean, Ronald Reagan, it's important to remember in the early 1980s when he visited uh, Bonn, West Germany for the first time, was greeted by several hundred thousand protesters on the banks of the Rhine River. Uh, protesting his nuclear weapons policy. So we've seen this before. Uh, I expect that uh, Trump will, you know, he'll have kind of the opposite of the crowd he had in Pennsylvania uh, the night of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He's going to have a lot of people very angry and vocal who are going to want to come out and show their disrespect. They actually may may spark counter-protests, which is kind of creates for an in interesting optic, particularly in a place like Germany, where folks from the right wing may come out to show their support. Uh, for Donald Trump, which is not exactly the optic I think a president of the United States wants to create either. So it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. Does he, you know, just kind of chin up and and get through it and not and not take the bait, or does he fire back in some way? Whether it's on Twitter, or when asked about it at a press conference, does he make things worse by sort of rising up and and criticizing protesters? Um, that's well, you could see the tweet. It'll say the fake media is focusing on the one million people lining the streets to the NATO meeting and ignoring that they left a box of chocolates in my <laughs> exactly. hotel room. I mean, or it could be that, you know, things are there's such a security. Well there's such a security lockdown that it's it's not as not particularly dramatic. Who knows? The NATO meeting is probably going to be a nothing burger. I mean, I've, it's really not even a meeting. It's more of a glorified dinner. Um, an interesting optic, by the way, will be that that either the day before or the day of that meeting, Chancellor Angela Merkel will be with uh, President Obama in Berlin. 
uh, at a at a uh, an event at the Brandenburg Gate at her invitation uh, to have President Obama there. So she will be leaving that very public event with President Obama uh, in Berlin to then join up with her uh, fellow NATO leaders, including President in, Trump. In which she falls sobbing into Obama's arms and says, it's, please, please don't make me go. It, it writes don't itself. It writes itself. This feels like one more questionable judgment on the part of the German chancellor it's, about the politics of dealing with President Trump. But she's obviously got her own politics. I mean, so that's what I mean, she's in the middle of a campaign and she's got her own politics to think about. So anyway, that's going to be an interesting optic. But my understanding is that this NATO summit, they, they've they're trying not to have much ambition to it. The fact it's happening. I mean, oftentimes these meetings, just the fact that they occur is is the uh, the deliverable uh, because they don't want to open up all this can of worms with Trump. They just just really getting him there, having the meeting, having it go relatively well, which means not just being disrupted in any way, uh, would be seen as a success. So Sharon, as you look out at the vast empire that you now control of FP reporters and thousands of bureaus around the world and several planets, um, when you look at the NATO Sicily part of this trip, what are you gonna be telling them to look for as stories? Yeah, so I, I have a different view. I mean, the, the idea of asking, you know, allies to actually pony up. I mean, burden sharing is not new. I think Trump will want. I mean, th there is, of course, the idea. Yes, Trump could have some crazy tweets out there, but he also wants to claim successes at, at things like this. He wants to come out of it saying, "I made this great deal," um, and, and so that's what I would ask reporters to look for. It's not just you know the expectation of a crazy tweet, but what was what what sort of success is it that he's going to claim or think he's going to claim? I think that that will be interesting for reporters to follow up on. Well, what's the likelihood that some of somebody at the NATO meeting decides to stand up for NATO and, you know, feels that they're going to go back home and get coverage? Here you were with Trump, who said NATO is obsolete and we're not ponying up our fair share, and they're going to feel compelled to call him out. I, I think everyone's going to feel compelled. Countries will want to give some lip service to say, yes, we are. I mean, there's so many ways to talk about the budget that, yes, we made this increase or we're doing this. And they can claim that they did something and then Trump can claim success. I think everyone has a motivation. I mean, the, the real question is, is there going to be any concrete progress? And that's that's something completely different. I don't think they're aiming for concrete progress. I think they're aiming for a reassuring statement after so many alarming statements by the president about our closest friends and closest allies in the world. So I think everybody is going to smile and nod and give Trump a victory in Brussels, just as the NATO secretary general smiled diplomatically when Trump ridiculously claimed uh, at their press conference in Washington that he had changed NATO and gotten it serious about terrorism, which is an outrage to an alliance of 28 members who have been fighting side by side in Afghanistan since 2001. And many of those allies have taken greater per capita casualties than we have. So before we turn to the Middle East side of the trip, I get the consensus from you guys that the goal of everybody or the goal of the U.S., which will have some support, will be for Trump to show up, be flanked by some cabinet secretaries, sit in the appropriate chair, appear in the appropriate pictures, and come away from this 
saying, see, I'm a typical president doing statecraft the typical way, and, and, and nothing weird happened here. Is that our sort of goal? Yeah. It's a pretty low bar. Yes. That, that's what success looks like right now. It's a pretty low bar. It reminds me of the movie Dave, where right. the, 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 the accountant president was, was there to handle those kind of things. Um, they, I, I, why don't we even just, I mean, what about an inflatable Trump? Trump looks like an inflatable Trump to begin with. And if we had an inflatable <laughs> Trump and then we put him into these meetings, then nothing gets screwed up. You get exactly the same outcome. It's a good idea, right? <laughs> Silence. Crickets. Okay. Okay, fine. Let's move on to another so part of this. I, I want to endorse your notion and say, is it possible we could get that not just for major international meetings, but for the entirety of the presidency? Quite possible. It might. I mean, I, I've, if, if we had to take a poll among the American people and say, what would you rather have, Donald Trump or an inflatable Trump? <laughs> Um, I think it would be pretty close. And then if you said you could use the inflatable Trump to drive in an HOV lane, I think it wins. <laughs> <laughs> so can I talk about the Middle East trip that the president's making? Because yeah, that I think was, that's where we're that's where we're going. That's where we're going with this. The Middle East trip seems to me to be something where both the the Gulf states, to the extent to which he meets with them, and the Israelis all think they can actually get something out of this, because Trump has sent very strong signals that he is likely to give them more of what they want, both the Gulf states and the Israelis, than Obama did, and I think everybody is going to be looking for some sign of that, Corey. So I think he is already giving them things that the Obama administration did not, which is averting America's eyes from the problems of their domestic governance and human rights and the military campaigns they have going on in Sinai, in Yemen, and on the Israeli docket, I think, giving them a pass on settlements. So, so I think they are already garnering uh, things from the administration that they want. And I, my guess is that what the president is going to do on the trip is roll out the strategy for Syria and boxing Iran in. Because I, I think the two are related and they are part of the reason why the administration is taking a different, I think, lots of arms sales to countries that want it, lots of intelligence support, lots of American. Another change in policy, I think the Obama administration's approach to the countries in the region that we actually wanted to win the wars they're fighting was to give them just enough help so that they didn't lose. And the Trump administration, I think, is taking a much more supportive approach and giving them all the help they ask for. So so opening the spigots, there are problems with that approach as well, but I do think it's distinctively different. And I think the president's going to try, or at least the administration's going to try, to string the pieces together, roll out a Syria policy, uh, shore up cooperation with the Israelis, the Gulf states, Jordan, to manage Iran differently. So uh, just in response to that, David, I think, um, whereas I think that's a relatively low bar to succeed 
in Europe. I actually think it's a high bar to succeed in the Middle East for the following reasons. I agree with Corey that there the the mood music has certainly gotten more more positive and favorable uh, to the ears of our Gulf partners and the Israelis. And, and certainly from the Gulf perspective, this makes sense to me. And I'm not—I don't want to be too cute here. But if you—if you think of the way they look at President Trump and his administration, it's more familiar to them uh, than previous U.S. presidents. It's—it's it's normal to do business with leaders whose closest family members are their most important advisors, right? They, you know, the the, the shared their shared affinity for palm-lined palaces and uh, gilded furniture uh, hmm. uh, is something <laughs> oh that uh, that they, they this is familiar I mean honestly when when Donald Trump goes to Saudi Arabia if he goes to Saudi Arabia he will go to one of the palaces and he will say these guys are bigly because this place looks mar- looks like makes Mar-a-Lago look like a small little campsite you know <laughs> that's right um, and he will if I were the Saudis and my understanding is when Mohammed bin Salman was in Washington, Recently, they talked about a possible visit, and they pitched ideas about where he could vi- where he could visit in Saudi Arabia. I'm unaware that he's actually ever been to Saudi Arabia. I might be wrong about that, but I think it would be very clever of them to get him to Saudi very quickly because he will feel at home there. Um, now, this this creates a problem of expectations because I think that they expect to see an appreciably different U.S. policy than their perception of the Obama policy one. And this is where I think the expectations are out of sync with what reality is going to be. Because I agree with Corey that he there could be some new ISIS strategy unrolled or new Iran strategy. But I actually think the substance is actually is going to look pretty similar to what the Obama po- policy turned over. I may be wrong, but I think it's going to look pretty similar. When you look at arms sales to the region, sure, we've seen some loosening up of arms sales since Trump's come in, particularly in Bahrain, uh, with, with less concerns about human rights. But the Obama administration conducted some record-setting arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates during its tenure in office. So I think the, the Gulfies have a perception that things are going to get a lot better. The, the mood's changing, no doubt about it, but I don't know that the, that the reality will match uh, their expectations. Well, isn't a lot of what they're going to discuss, Sharon, things that will not actually be announced but behind the scenes? I mean, the United States is is kind of inclined to offer up more support than they have in the past. We've already seen that in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and others who are bogged down in Yemen, you know, clearly are are welcoming of this support. And I think you're likely to see more uh, more discussions, you know, offline about that. More discussions in 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 the, in the same way about holding back the Iranians in, in a variety of different places. Isn't a lot of what a Gulf Cooperation Council summit might lead to uh, stuff that's more 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 likely than not to be off the record behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree, and I also, but I also don't think it'll be huge changes. I, I I think the Israel trip, if it happens, would be the most interesting one. I mean, just imagine the tweets that could come out of that, or even more importantly, the consequences. I mean, really, you know, if you look at NATO, where everyone has a motivation to shake hands and declare success at the end, that's not true in Israel. Um, you know, even if Trump were to go off the rails at, 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 the, at the NATO meeting and to tweet something crazy, is it really anything that would have any huge consequences? In Israel, it could. I think that will be the one that will be very interesting to look out for. Well, of course, Israel and, and by the way, according to my understanding of this, the GCC trip are both trips where the 
Shadow Secretary of State Jared Kushner is playing a very big role in setting things up. Uh, And in Israel, of course, Kushner has a family history of being tied to the far right, settlement building factions there. They've underwritten some of that. Um, And of course, in Israel now, the U.S. has by far the most right-wing U.S. ambassador to Israel that we've ever had with David Friedman. And in fact, I I was recently in Israel, and, and many Israelis said to me, that they now think of the Trump administration as being to the right of the administration of Bibi Netanyahu, which is saying something, since Bibi Netanyahu seems bent these days on dismantling little things like, you know, freedom of expression and the ability of people to enter the country of differing views and to express those views. So, Corey, what do you think this hard shift right in Israel portends for this relationship? You know, I am not much of an expert on Israeli politics, so uh, I wish I could get a pass on this one. I do think, though, that the the positive way Kushner, the, the sort of uh, Arab dictator's manual by which the Trump family both decorates and practices governance uh, won't be like that's not going to be a popular stand to take in Israel. And their policies moving so far to the right seems to me to be not the direction Israeli politics are going. But I would defer to people who follow it more closely than I do. So I think it's the Israel trip will be very interesting because Israel, I think, is another country that it maybe uh, is reflecting on the first uh, 100 plus days of the Trump administration and wondering whether it's working out as well as they maybe thought it would. Uh, you know, first, the fact that the Trump administration came into office taking some positions that the Israeli government really wasn't pushing, for example, on on moving the embassy, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, uh, which was going to create a lot of turbulence in Israel that they weren't really looking for. And the fact the Trump administration backed off that uh, was in part because the Israelis said, we're not, this isn't going to really help us much. And also, obviously, the king of Jordan came in and said that this was going to create a big problem. And then, and then Trump has seemed to be very interested in trying to bring about some sort of deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I think he said, or randomly making well, claims could. No. So what's interesting, I mean, it's it's too early to tell, of course, but, you know, the person in the administration who's who is getting very high marks so far, but who's sort of been flying under the radar uh, relative to Mattis and McMaster is uh, Trump's special negotiator, uh, Greenblatt, who has did a trip to the Middle East few weeks ago that was uh, got very, very positive reviews. He seems to be a very capable guy and who uh, has, with some controversy, has continued to work with some of the uh, Obama career officials who served in, in influential positions during the Obama administration, uh, who've been targeted by right-wing media as a result of this. So I think there's some, some suspicion. And if you remember when Prime Minister Netanyahu was in Washington during his first trip a few months ago, you know, Trump said during the press conference something effective, oh, yeah, you know, on settlements. He said, like, it'd be a lot easier if you stopped doing that, right? And so I think that kind of the uncertainty about where he may land, what he may try to put on the table in the service of getting some deal, maybe so, that that unpredictability may be something that uh, the Israelis are going to be suspicious about. Is there an outcome that you can imagine, Sharon, out of coming out of 
either of these Gulf trips that will resonate very strongly back home. You mean in a good way? <laughs> yes. I don't know out of the GCC. I mean, sure, if he could come out of Israel with, you know, some claim of, you know, success, but I don't know what that would be. And again, unlike in Europe, where there's a motivation for everyone to claim success and progress, even if there isn't, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, so if there were some progress in in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that would resonate back home. But I don't really, I'm not an optimist on that. So Derek, Corey, write me the headlines that are going to come after these trips, whichever elements of it actually materialize. Just project us into June 1st, the Trump presidency. Has it entered a new era of seriousness as a foreign policy presidency? Well, that's not the headline. The answer to that is no. I, I think there will be a temptation by many observers uh, that, oh, Trump has all of a sudden done something very normal uh, and he's learning on the job and he's getting, uh, he's changing. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think we'll have another, it'll be kind of a State of the Union, or it, was, it wasn't State of the Union, but it was a joint joint session of Congress speech. He's just something that does, that's sort of not controversial and it's heralded as a, a great uh, shift. I think in Europe it will be, you know, Trump greeted by protesters but reaffirms the uh, commitment to NATO. And and I think in the Middle East it will be Trump – it will be something about how he unveils a new strategy towards ISIS and to stand up to Iran. Although, as I said earlier, I think the substance of that is going to look like more of the same. I think the headline in Brussels is – NATO supports Trump counterterror policy. I think the headline in Israel is uh, Trump supports expanded settlements because I think the likelihood for him going off the rails is highest while in Israel. And I think the um, headlines from when he is elsewhere, when he's in the Gulf, are United Anti-Iran Coalition. What do you think, Sharon? I, I disagree on the Israel one. I actually don't think he's going to come out with a strong statement in support of settlements. I mean, however misguided, I do think he wants to think that he can come up with some sort of deal there. So I think if there's any place where he'll be a little bit more careful, it would be there. Um, uh, on the rest, sure. We'll wait and see. <laughs> I, th I think there's going to be a very strong impulse on the part of the press to bend over backwards to try to make it look like this was a fairly successful normalizing trip. Um, but I, my money is still on some unexpected event dominating the headlines. <laughs> that's, that's the safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. right. But, yeah. I, you know, I, don't, I don't know what it is. We got about five minutes left here. I want to do something slightly off the normal conversation here. And I don't want to put you on the spot, Sharon. Book's kind of <laughs> terrific. And I just thought it might be worth a minute or two or three for you to tell listeners a little bit about the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. That's uh, all I've talked about the last six weeks. So sure, why not? So um, the, the book is a history of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, this independent division of the Pentagon that does sort of far out science and technology reports, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, and it is in many ways a revisionist history because it, it goes back to sort of the classified work that DARPA did in the Vietnam War, which has been largely swept under the carpet, to talk about how 
its Vietnam work and particularly its work in technologies and techniques for counterinsurgency is what made the agency what it is today. And that the way we prosecute our wars today, at least technologically, in terms of precision weapons, drones, stealth aircraft, is a product of our most failed war experience, the Vietnam War and what DARPA did there. When I look for relevance to today's debate, actually what I tell people in terms of science is that, you know, we've seen a proposal from the Trump administration to slash funding for some civil science, whether it's the National Institutes of Health or climate research. Presumably, actually, DARPA's budget would increase if the increases in the Defense Department budget are pushed through. So what you're actually seeing is a return to some of the Cold War debates of tying science to national security. And whether that's good or bad depends on what you think of Cold War innovations. And in 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 looking at this, is the... F- Fate, the future of DARPA fairly secure, even with all the budget talks and everything else we've talked about? Is it appreciated by current administration? I think it's, you know, the current administration hasn't said much about DARPA. Um, it's been, you know, DARPA sort of enjoying this sort of you know, peak era of its career that it's sort of loved by Democrats and Republicans alike. It's touted as this great model of innovation, even though people don't really ask, you know, is DARPA the same now that it was 20, 30, even 40 years ago? Um, so I, I think if it, it it will continue to get support, I think, unfortunately, it, it's largely irrelevant to the national security debates of today. I mean, a lot of what I talk about in the book is in the 60s, late 50s, 60s, and 70s, this was an agency that was front and center in Cold War debates, whether it was arms control, whether it was counterinsurgency in Vietnam. Um, You don't see DARPA invoked a lot either, certainly not by the White House, certainly not by senior Pentagon leadership. It does some wonderful science and technology, but it's largely irrelevant to the national security threats of today, unfortunately. Derek yeah. and Corey, I just want you to sort of put this into context. DARPA is one of those parts of the U.S. government that's extraordinarily important back from the birth of DARPAnet and the Internet through to today. Uh, and it also is one of those parts of the U.S. government that I've always admired for its commitment to what they call DARPA hard problems, the problems that can't be solved someplace else. And uh, I just, you know, you both have been uh, exposed to this up close but I want to underscore why a book like Sharon's book is so important by 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 you putting it in some context. Well, first, it's an important part of our history that is uh, underappreciated. So, Sharon, I congratulate you on doing the book, and I look forward to reading it myself. And I have to say that just thinking about it from the in the context of today, uh, one of the things I'm interested in, in seeing uh, from the Pentagon as as uh, their team gets staffed up is where uh, Secretary Mattis and company decide to take the innovation agenda that the latter part of the Obama Pentagon worked on, uh, you know, whether it was the third offset with Bob Work, uh, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, who's who's the outgoing, still there, but is the outgoing Deputy Secretary of Defense, um, to Ash Carter's Force of the Future that he worked on in the last two years of the Obama administration, that although it's much bigger than just DARPA, because but DARPA is kind of the most emblematic piece of that, because it's about how do we harness uh, the technologies of the future to ensure that we maintain our military support, superiority and that and that edge. And that's not just what the U.S. government can do in-house, but also how we work with the private sector, with the tech industry, uh, as issue as as fields like robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, and the like uh, become uh, more important uh, for the future of our of our military. 
Corey, 60 seconds. I really like Derek's explanation there, and I absolutely agree with it. Big bureaucracies are good at marginal adaptation. They're good at continuing successful processes. They're not good at imagining or executing discontinuitous change. And and so they can't imagine, for example, you know, uh, airplanes without pilots in them. And DARPA does the kind of technology research that that makes imaginable big breakthroughs in warfighting. And defense industry doesn't produce it without this spur and goad, because it's about imagination. It's about thinking about what's possible. And that's what DARPA really creates in the defense ecosystem. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, I, I see that. That's why I think Sharon's book is so important. That's why I encourage you to go out and buy Sharon's book, The Imagineers, and you know, if you go to Amazon, they probably give you a discount if you also buy The Great Questions of Tomorrow, which is my book. Uh, <laughs> and if you're not sure whether you want to buy it, you could always go to the FP website where earlier this week uh, we had uh, The Day Before the Renaissance, which is an excerpt of my book. And they're not unrelated because I think one of the things that I feel and perhaps Sharon feels and perhaps Derek and Corey feel it as well, is it's very easy to get caught up in the headlines. It's very easy to get caught up in yesterday's threats. And it's dangerous because there are very, very big changes afoot. Many of them are technologically driven. Both of these books touch upon some of the technological changes that are afoot. Sharon's also about how do we achieve them. I try to deal with some of the the, the political and social implications of those changes. Um, and you know, if you think about the world, the dumb thing that the president of the United States said yesterday is just not as important as the fact that we will soon have artificial intelligence empowering lots of machines and changing our lives. And I think we need to keep our eye on the ball. That's why I commend Sharon for writing the book. That's why I encourage you to buy and read the book. Buy mine while you're at it. Thank Corey and Derek and Sharon for joining us on this week's episodes of the ER. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.